Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Professor Stefan Schreiber. He's a professor of medicine at uh, Christian Albrecht University in Kiel, Germany. Um, he's in the Department of Internal Medicine, and uh, he's at the University Medical Center, Schleswig-Holstein. We're going to talk about uh, bowel diseases. And, Hi, Richard. Uh, you know, this is impressive um, how you spell these complicated German words. I'm trying. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, very good. Tell me about your uh, your research and your work. What do you do there? I'm here what you would call an academic astrologist, which means I do see patients um, more than I like. So uh, I see patients for the entire field of gastroenterology, although my personal hobby is very clearly inflammatory bowel disease. And then on the other hand, I do have the chance to do quite some research, mainly in the molecular etiology and the biomarkers of inflammatory bowel disease. Um, and so I think we are running big uh, cohort studies uh, for both uh, discovery and also for uh, implementing new therapies. We have been part of many of the phase two, one, two, and three phase, uh, trials of newer agents and also created some, um, uh, say, ideas on our own that now go clinical. So what are the major inflammatory bowel diseases? Uh, basically two that comprise most of the phenotypes, uh, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And you can enlarge that group by adding lymphocytic um, uh, colitis and uh, microscopic colitis um, into that and collagenous colitis. Um, um, maybe also you can uh, further enhance that space by saying that the inflammatory forms of irritable bowel syndrome should be also a kind of inflammatory bowel disease. I think most people talk about Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis as two main phenotypes. And that's what uh, I think is a uh, the usual clinical wisdom. So you're looking for biomarkers that would that would say that someone has it or is going to get it in the next few years? I think that's the holy grail to find out who's about to get it. So we have done molecular ideology studies at large with 10,000 of patients in big collaborations. And I think bowel disease, Crohn's disease namely, but both diseases actually have played out great. They were paradigm examples for the human genetics work in complex diseases showing really can undertake um, early uh, or ideology factors, genetic variants that lend risk to individuals to develop the disease. But then if you break that down to the individual and go and leave the cohort, then these effects are small. They may be highly significant, but the odds ratio, if they approach two, is already much. And you cannot do much with an odds ratio of two for something you eventually may get into your life. And if you break it then down to the terms of specificity and sensitivity, then you also find that the specificity of the findings is not great. So if you look at the overall distributions of inflammatory bowel disease-related variants, you find that probably 30% of the population carries quite some of them, but only 0.5%, it's a lifetime prevalence, will get inflammatory bowel disease. So having the variant or not doesn't tell you much. 
So you need other things, and we are about to look for them, functional things. You look into families uh, where the children develop inflammatory bowel disease, a much higher likelihood. We take blood from them. We take molecular samples and hope that we'll find enough patients traveling from health into manifestation to allow us to do something uh, earlier, find an earlier functional genomic marker. But that's not there yet. But the, um, I think the disease etiology research has been not useless. It has changed our view from inflammatory bowel disease being autoimmune problem into one that this disease is rather defensive problem and that the microbiome plays a big role because many indeed of the etiology factors have nothing to do with autoimmunity. They have to do with barrier keeping. So that has changed our view that changes medication development. And in another 10 years, it will lead to a different generation of medications also out there for RBD. So when we're talking about biomarkers, um, in the very beginning, I said, you know, if we can figure this out before the person gets IBD, you know, like you said, that would be the holy grail, four crowns. But what do people feel like clinically before they get these conditions? And, you know, how would you ever, you know, do people go to the doctor and say, oh, my stomach is starting to hurt me all the time? Or like what happens that would, would tell you that they're headed for trouble clinically? Yeah, what would the, the patient experience? It's not unusual that patients tell you about symptoms and trouble they have years before they have a manifestation. And the reason why I say that is because manifestation is obviously determined by diagnostic criteria. So I must have a finding, for example, on endoscopy or a biopsy. And I would say, I recall I had a number of patients who have come to me and I did repeat colonoscopies on them found nothing, and then suddenly, like it would be always there, there's a typical ulcer of uh, Crohn's disease. And I say, you know, our patient had for three, four years symptoms and kept on coming, kept on being endoscoped. And three, four years later, third endoscopy, suddenly there is the macromorphologic damage, the ulcer. And the disease process obviously has started earlier. We couldn't detect it. The symptoms were already there. Patients also very often tell that mm -hmm. in their families, there has been bowel symptoms probably undiagnosed RBD. So if you question them about their mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, they tell you very often, oh, they have RBD, but you know, my sister also never been diagnosed, but she also has always trouble. And my mother, I never know what was diagnosed, probably at that time wasn't diagnosed. She's now dead, but she also had a lot of trouble with the bowel. So I think symptoms should be underestimated. The idea that there's just a pure delay by insufficient diagnostic procedures is not true. It is because our diagnostic criteria are probably sometimes not right. We don't have anything better. Hmm. Um, so is there any clear indication yet of what biomarkers are showing that uh, someone has IBD or Crohn's or uh, that is, is headed towards it? And I, when I you say biomarkers, is it is it blood, stool, yeah, or is it microbiome? Yeah. Everybody hopes it could be microbiome. But again, there is not the smoking gun change. Our blood, I think, has disappointed earlier. So I think the uh, idea of uh, predicting who has inflammatory bowel disease is now driven by big um, family inception cohorts where the children of uh, patients or the first degree relatives of patients have a 30 to 40-fold risk above the normal population risk to develop IBD within a time of 10, 15 years. And these are long-term projects in which these patients undergo regular blood and stool um, sampling. Um, and we all hope that with today's genomic and proteomic techniques, we find these early changes, but they haven't been defined yet. 
has has it been defined at all? I mean, what what has? Yeah, been there's some work. There's some work on uh, military recruitees where uh, young men have been examined, um, obviously being healthy when they went to army, and later uh, there have been again uh, the ones have been picked who uh, five ten years later have inflammatory bowel disease, and then you have these serum samples back, obviously from the recruitment period when they supposedly were healthy. That has been on Israel, has been repeated in the U.S. And there's certain, let's say, bacterial antibodies that are probably an epiphenomenon, but that show up in the serum of these people. But again, the diagnostic value of that is so bad that you cannot use that to identify the patients. And the hope is that it would have a biomarker which is so specific, but such a high predictive value that it could do preemptive therapy before manifestation and avoid manifestation. But then you have to be sure that the person develops IBD. And as long as you're not sure with the right certainty, you cannot do these trials. Well, okay. So what's, what clinically, how do you establish for certain that someone has IBD or Crohn's? They are clear diagnostic criteria. And that okay, those good. are typically endoscopic, um, histologic, radiologic changes, plus the symptoms. But these changes, I say, are macromorphologic. So if you bring this to a picture, you know, it's like you diagnose problems in cars only if your fender is falling off. Um, so are we getting anywhere close to figuring out any, any biomarkers that, uh, you know, oh, I think yes, that, I think yes. So I think the what, what kind of biomarkers? Yeah, the molecular biology around that has made the same leap forward as, um, uh, say, pocket computers who once filled an entire room. Now we have the iPhone, it was in 25 years. And the molecular biology has just started 10, 15 years ago and makes the same leap forward. So I think we are able to, uh, we are already able to do the genome for for a few hundred bucks, yeah, once it was hundreds of millions a few years ago, just 15 years ago. And so um, uh, autogenomics and proteomics do that same step. So yes, I am completely confident we're able to see these early early markers of disease development in many diseases years ahead of the disease. So that's going to come and shape the next generation of children. For them, it will be commonplace if, if medicine can afford it in that society. But technically, it could be commonplace. I think what's now the game for the here now in inflammatory bowel disease, we have a number of therapies that go deep into disease pathophysiology, so-called biologics and targeted therapies. But these therapies don't deliver the cure. They deliver maybe in 10, 20% of patients thorough benefit of disease control, but many others just uh, disease improvement. And I think being able to tell earlier which therapy is best, be able to guide jumping to the next therapy that's, I think, something where the biomarkers will deliver much earlier. Uh, so how early do you think would be uh, important for someone to discover that they're headed in the direction of IBD or Crohn's? And can we tell clinically from the first onset of any symptoms, how long is it until they have full-blown you know, uh, Crohn's or, or IBD? Oh, it really takes between one and two years between the first onset of symptoms and the diagnosis. They're good data out on that average. And for the reason I said, it's difficult to shrink that. But as I said, the biggest problem is to start a therapy. And patients hang on a therapy that is not fully functional for them for years without being switched to the next one. And biomarkers to guide that process of switching, those are, I think, much clearer, much nearer than the predictive marker of disease onset. Um, okay. So you said someone will have symptoms for, what, a year or more? Yep. Sometimes years? Yep. And they'll just what, pass them off as, oh, you know, uh, I mean, I there are many people have diarrhea, you know, lots of IBS people, or bowel syndrome, lots of other reasons. 
So um, I think just having symptoms that are so generic as the ones in inflammatory bowel disease doesn't give you the chance to diagnose. You need more than that. Hmm. Um, at what point do you expect if you're successful in finding a biomarker, how, how far ahead of time do you think you'll be able to, uh, to help someone figure out if they have a problem? Oh, ideally at birth, but probably it would be good if you could tell three to five years ahead of time what happens there. Do you think, I mean, what, what role does diet play in this? Or do you think it's genetic? I think it's genetic, all about the risk profile, but the risk profile is carried by many people. And I think there could be even more IBD if you look at risk profiles. But something must have happened in the environment conditions um, because obviously there wasn't hardly any disease before 1950. And then it came on and obviously uh, multiplicated more or less in the Western countries. And now it's coming on in China and the Asian countries. So I think for me, it looks like it's lifestyle change. Now, what makes out our lifestyle as, as the biggest impact is probably diet. And that something must have happened to diet. Um, you can tell by the fact that in the 70s and 80s, you remember the campaigns about people dying from hunger. Obviously, now the world is much more densely populated. At that time, it was 2 billion people. Now we have 7 or 8. And still, we can obviously feed all of them if we can distribute it. So our production for food has increased tremendously. But we must have done something to the food that we can produce so much. Now you can make a big list of changes in the food. And obviously find many, many smoking guns that could have contributed to this effect. But who knows what it is because it's not easy to prove an etiology for such a change. People say, for example, could it be that there is uh, the cleanliness of food that gives us trouble? Maybe in the earlier days, the food was not as well preserved. We didn't have enough because much more was destroyed. And even the one which we were eating had more microbiome on it. Today, the food is ultra clean. So maybe mm. that's a problem. Who knows? Could be. Hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the conditions themselves. How different is uh, IBD versus Crohn's? And what, you know, what happens to someone that has the two? So IBD is the overall category. So the two entities mm. are ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And these diseases are obviously pretty similar. But yet they differ in symptoms. The difference in symptoms comes from some complications that are unique to the one disease but not the other. So with Crohn's disease, you can officially disease and stenosis that obviously have obvious problems if you have them. And with ulcerative colitis, for example, you always have a distal disease. So your bloody stool is much more prevalent than Crohn's disease. Also, ulcerative colitis, you'll have, you said bloody stool more often than Crohn's, but yeah. Crohn's yeah. is what maybe. And Crohn's, you have more, more pain. pain because of stenosis more the fish and the inflammatory problem. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Stenosis meaning what? Narrowing of Narrowing the, the colon? Narrowing bowel can't pass the content anymore. That can go to the point where you die from bowel occlusion. Jesus. Right. Um, so ulcerative colitis and, and Crohn's, um, are there any other major predominant uh, intestinal diseases like these, or are these really the two big ones? These are the two big ones in the group of inflammatory bowel disease. It's 95-99%. If you have one, do you tend to get the other? You know, mm -hmm. All sort of colitis, does it lead to Crohn's? That's an interesting question, which can be debated probably on a philosophical, philosophical level. Now, these are two different diseases, obviously. People do a lot of work to determine whether the patient is the one or the other. On the other hand, you see phenotypes changing. And you do know patients, all of us who do that work in patients, know patients who have started with a very clear morphologic diagnosis of ulcerative colitis and then have changed phenotype. And some years later, somebody said, you know, actually looking at this, 
does not also cause Crohn's disease. It matches now the criteria of Crohn's disease. So it has been very clearly documented that that change occurs. And it's now a philosophical change, whether we have a continuum, which we call IBD, and the outer ends of the spectrum are just a very clear Crohn's versus a very clear colitis, or whether these are two diseases, and you also can have both, with sometimes the one more shining up than the other. But I think this is really semantic. So we don't know if it's a continuum of disease and that they're the same thing or not? If you look at genetics, it looks like continuum. Oh, meaning there, there's no genetic difference between Crohn's and IBD? There is genetic difference, but it's obviously like a smear. So that it looks like, from genetics, it looks like inflammation is the main problem. Then you have inflammatory bowel disease. And then there's the extremes out on the two basically opposite ends, Crohn's versus ulcerative colitis. And if all your disease genes are skewed to the one end, then it's really clear Crohn's. And all your disease genes are skewed to the other end, real ulcerative colitis. But that's the case for the fewest patients. Most patients are in between, and then they get the one or other di diagnosis. Hmm. That's what genetic tells you. Clinically, um, it's very clear. We would say 80% of patients can be put into the one or other corner, and then there are 20% of patients who trade off and change where the diagnosis is revised. Oh, really? Okay. Um, do they have, does it affect certain... You said it was affecting Americans. Now it's affecting the Chinese. Um, does it affect men and women differently? Does it, you know, uh, is there a, okay? How about uh, average age or circumstance? There, are, I think, two peaks of occurrence. One is early adulthood, that is uh, between the twenties, thirties, um, so second, third decade of life. That's when most patients manifest. And then there's a smaller peak somewhere around fifty or sixty. And then very placative are those cases of uh, pediatric inflammatory bowel disease. It's a small number, but obviously the child is hit in the age of six, eight, ten. Then obviously um, things are very, very bad. So this is a very placative subgroup. Hmm. And this happens more in uh, adults than children, right? Or does one yeah. of the conditions happen more in children? The overall, the overall picture is much more adults than children. Has anyone done a, a massive study to look at uh, the dietary habits of thousands of people that have and don't have these conditions? Of course, but the study is always heavily contaminated by the fact that the disease developed between 1960 and, uh, say, 1990, I would say, were the biggest increases, or when the U.S., a little bit earlier than in Europe, Europe more after the Second World War, and during that time, everything changed. Cars, computers, cell phones, uh, hygiene, number of toilets, refrigerators, food, and everything associates. Well, I mean, this is a, a digestive issue. It affects our digestion. Why not focus they, on that? They looked, at, they looked at the number of toilets in the house and the question whether you have warm warm water and whether you have uh, central, uh, central heating. And that associated very highly that paper led to a lot of discussion about urban lifestyle versus uh, country lifestyle. Hmm. So have there been any correlates found, uh, you know, anywhere or, or no? It just goes back to the too many correlates uh, found, and they all correlate with a changing life. Mm, too many, okay. And some uh, seem to be like they shouldn't correlate at all, or they're but okay. There's many. What are what are some of the correlations that have been found that make no sense? Number of power plants, the sealed surface, the um, sanitation of water. I think they make probably little sense. But again, these are all associations that have been described, and they all come together 
in a world that heavily has, has heavily changed over the last five decades. Is there anything interesting that would come from China? You know, how has it changed? And when, when did, you know, um, these conditions start their onset in China? Uh, probably 10, 15 years ago. And China would be a fantastic laboratory to obviously look at uh, the effect of single civilization factors. But the problem is you need a strong epidemiologic interest for that. And I think that's not built up in China. So that chance probably is largely missed. Mm. So it would be a unique opportunity to study it, but uh, there's, there's not the interest there. Yeah, yeah, what what percentage of... Uh, a central place like China with, you know, a monolithic, uh, non-democratic regimen, right. you could easily say, I take outer Mongolia that prevent them from modern life. I take Beijing and I bring modern life. And I do an experiment about lifestyle and modern diseases, not just Crohn's disease, also all the other civilization diseases, including MS and whatever. But I don't think it's done. Uh, and also there's no descriptive epidemiology in China. So they're not very good in describing things. Really? Why? What do they do instead? They don't finance that. I mean, it's all a question about grant financing. Oh, okay. Huh. Interesting. Very strange. Um, what, if you do epidemiology, what you have to take big bucks into your hands. Yeah, yeah. What's the potential burden on China, do you think? You know, if it's the same as the U.S. and there's the same mm-hmm. incidence of these conditions, mm-hmm. you know, like what percentage of the population do you think may be affected? Probably less than the U.S., or the numbers which I speculated about, 2 million uh, UC patients, also localized patients in China by 2030. Uh, if you look at 1 billion people, 2 million means just a uh, lifetime prevalence of 0.2%. So that will be the US numbers. Even if it's just half of that, it's still 1 million patients in UC. So um, with these countries being so densely inhabited, so many people in there, obviously the impact will be huge, even if it will be not approaching the same level as in the West. But many things point to the same level as in the West. The Chinese have also now got Nash, they've got hypertension, they've got obesity, they adopt everything we have. Really? Across all these conditions, I'm sure everyone's looking for a correlation. Is there any of them that you think that uh, China will be willing to you know, study themselves or partner on, or are they just kind of a closed society and there's no uh, help from them? I think the Chinese do their own thing. <laughs> yeah. That's too bad. So yeah, these, these are nice things in a worldwide uh, effort. Obviously, things would run smoother, but I don't think that things are set that way. There's too much money in health, and there's too much need in health that big countries partner this way. Mm. And I shouldn't underestimate also the strength of the Chinese in developing their own medications and their own pharma industry. So they think they are on the road to to also keep up in that place. Uh, the moment they make already the best computers. I think in a decade or two, they also will make a significant part of pharma. So, um, you know, you've been working on these conditions for, you know, for quite a while. Uh, where do you think that the answer is going to come from? Just all of a sudden we're going to be able to find a medication that's going to work? Or uh, like, where do you think the breakthrough in understanding is going to be? I would think particular value will have those studies that are longitudinal, take the breath of 10, 20 years looking at children, looking at the onset of IBD, accompanying people from health into manifestation, family studies, finding good ways to start early with therapy at a moment when the disease by today's standards wouldn't have been diagnosed. That's, I think, one of the avenues I think is particularly uh, largely likely to be successful. And then I think the chance, obviously, of human human, uh, fantasy to invent things is also large. 
much of the progress in medicine has been not on a linear stream. People just tried something and oops, it worked just because he had the, the chance, they had the invention, they, they just tried and it worked. And yeah. I wouldn't be surprised, you know, that's also happening here. It's a question of investment as well. I think um, you would invest the same money you people invested for the race to the moon. They could have also had a race to eradicate RBD, eradicate right. cancer. Uh, remember, the, the, the idea of putting a rocket to the moon has engaged about 400,000 people with, uh, I think, highly, highly skilled workers, engineers, and so on. They've been all brought together in one big effort because everybody wanted to beat the Russians in the Cold War. So we would have the same effort oh. if you want to beat the disease. I think you can do it. What's even more problematic, though, is liquid cancer. You know, they spend yeah, billions and billions. It was and... more problematic at the time when you didn't have a pocket calculator than killing cancer today. Yeah, and yet, yet uh, it still hasn't happened. And then, you know, same thing with Alzheimer's and neurodegenerative diseases. Yeah, you can make the list. You can make yeah. the list. And the question is, where is inflammatory bowel disease on that list? I don't think it's the top. I don't think it's the bottom either. Um, I think there's a tremendous suffering in the disease. There are some disease conditions that are worse, for example, multiple sclerosis. And then there are also some that are much less. So I think um, if you looked at society investment, it should come somewhere in the upper third of the list. Hmm. Well, very good. What do you think is going to be possible in the near term with uh, these two conditions? Any breakthroughs coming or is it just slow, steady understanding and progress? I think the um, um, uh, uh, advent of molecular biology and pharmaceutical industry has spurred the um, ability to develop new targeted medications, namely biologics, but also small molecules. And these find now their entry into clinical trials. So it's an enormous number of clinical trials coming in these conditions. And then there's a second interest, is a microbiome interest. If you want to understand the microbiome, you need a good disease to, to play with. And again, inflammatory bowel disease is a good disease because you can look at the mucosa and see your success. Is there less inflammation than before? And so I think these two movements come together and I think they could indeed uh, bring a benefit to inflammatory bowel disease more than other diseases because it could become a lead example to show a proof of concept for some interventions. And so I think we see at the moment a lot of trials going on in late stages. And I will be confident that this brings us a big leap forward in the ability to treat disease. Probably the same way as psoriasis. Nobody would have thought that there are suddenly biologics out of psoriasis that blow out the disease in 90% of patients. It's an inflammatory skin disease. It's as polygenic, it's as colorful as IBD. And then there's an agent that you know stops it at 90%. Needs to be given continuously, but stops it. So uh, one day of uh, the future, not too far away, we'll see that agent also coming for IBD. Yeah, hopefully so. Well, well, the disease dies down. Mm-hmm. Stomach, last, last thought to that. Stomach ulcer is a good one, yeah? When I was young, in my early days of training, stomach ulcer was a very bad condition. And people got crippling, had to undergo crippling operations. The rods, resections, you know, stomach resection, two-third resection, whatever. Dumping syndromes after extensive intestinal resections. There was a recurring ulcer disease, really, you know, with perforations of stenosis. The whole show of destroying people. And then somebody invented Helicobacter pylori. Well, that could be killed. And today we still have some acid problems in the stomach, yes. But it's a mere reflection, you know, nothing anymore like we had this time. Well, hopefully the same happens for these conditions, you know. Okay. Oh, what, what, oh, you know, well, on one quick, uh, 
what's the average age at which people, uh, you know, start to experience problems and then have full-blown uh, issues? I think most people in the second and third decade of life. Oh, 20s or 30s? The 20s so is typical age to develop that disease. The problem, of course, if you look deep into the heart of patients and you ask them, then they will tell you, oh, I had some problem going 10, 15 years ago. But maybe if you get such a disease, you remember your problem. I would say typically more intense problems precede the development of disease by a year or two before it's diagnosed. Mm, okay, makes sense. Well, very good. Stefan, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Look at our homepage um, at the University of Kiel and search for us. We have several also patient-oriented pages for lay people. You can join our studies. You can donate your blood. You can uh, push the effort we do. And obviously, uh, we are part of a big group here called an excellence cluster in inflammation. So we have received a lot of money for the government to understand also IBD as a systems disease. Indeed, we think that inflammation is a general phenomenon and you fall too short if you just look at the gut or the skin or the joints. You have a look at the entirety of inflammatory problems and bring these diseases together under one umbrella. That's what we do in research and clinical. You can look at that at the excellence cluster Precision Medicine and Inflammation, PMI, their webpage is out. And obviously, um, you can help us push forward. Okay, very good. Well, Stefan, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Sure. Success to you, and thanks for having me. Bye-bye. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.